All first-year law students take contracts, where they learn about offer and acceptance and what makes a legally enforceable agreement. But what can contract theory tell us about police violence against Black people in the United States? Welcome to the California Law Review Podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today we'll be discussing Protect and Serve, a piece by University of Richmond School of Law professor Marissa Jackson So, published in Issue 3 of Volume 110 in June of 2022. Professor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your article. And thank you for taking the time to give me this opportunity and platform to discuss it with you. It's a real pleasure. So to begin with, can you summarize your main argument in this piece? Absolutely. I mean, so the piece is called Protect and Serve, and it's a, a sort of an obvious play on the sort of mainstream model of police in America. Um, and, it, you know, there's a, sort of the hagiography the of policing is sort of the guy, you know, the guy who is like maybe a little chubby and likes donuts and helps old ladies carry their groceries across the street. Um, and it's not that that doesn't exist, but there's also a problem if you are... Um, you know, a, a marginalized person, your experience with policing is a lot different and you may feel that you are neither protected nor served. So this paper seeks to sort of break down where where that gap is and it makes the case that no, police always have protected and served and, and they are protecting and serving, but the question is a question of what the police are protecting and serving. And so there's a history of protecting property, um, and then protecting this idea of order. And I think the problem for marginalized people is that we have a legacy of both being property. And because we are still thought of as property, we are often considered to be out of order. So that is why we suffer um, over-policing, over-surveillance and brutality. And what was it that motivated you to write this article? Living in New York and serving in New York City government. Um, Specifically, so I live in Baltimore now, and I left on June 7th, June 7th, 2020. So there's two things going on, um, the pandemic, and I was living in the South Bronx with my family. And there was, this, of course, this now notorious crackdown that, you know, Human Rights Watch has issued reports on um, it happening literally above my building, uh, my apartment building. And my husband was an essential worker. And I had every time he went to work at night, I had to fear for his life because there was a risk that he would be billy clubbed and beaten, you know, um, or suspected of being a, a, a civil rights protester by the police. Um, and so um, after footage started to emerge of the police really rough, roughing people up, um, my own former boss, the mayor, sort of taking, like not doing enough in my view to protect people's civil liberties, um, I just started to really look at it, not just from a personal perspective, but then from an academic um, research perspective. And it seems like in this country, there is a growing understanding that race and whiteness specifically are not biological, but are constructed through law and policy. And your piece uses the concept of whiteness as contract and critical contract theory to describe this process of constructing and maintaining whiteness and racial capitalism. Can you describe these terms and outline how this process works to, as you write, premise the benefits of citizenship of some upon the deprivation of others of those same benefits? Yes, absolutely. So 
The tricky thing about race is that it's not biological, but of course it's biologized, right? It has to be woven into biology in order to perpetuate itself. But, but it is a system. It's a political and legal system. Like race is a legal designation. So I have um, one of my best friends is considered black in the United States, but in her native country of Zimbabwe, she's actually considered colored. Right. And so it's it's about, you know, how in this country, the U.S. Census Bureau, Bureau decides to break things down. It's about what, you know, in the in the mid 19th century, what the U.S. Supreme Court said. Right. Whether you could be white or not. The impact of those decisions. Right. I mean, if I'm thinking about that, that that string of cases where um, non people who we now understand to be non-white in the U.S. context said, no, please let me be white. And it's like, well, why? Well, because if I am white, I can vote. I can become a citizen. I and 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 if I can vote and and be a citizen, then that means that there are all these other material benefits. There's all these other economic assets that become available to me. And of course, if you don't have those civil civil and political rights, then you also don't have the economic right and social capital that comes with it. So there is this clear line between right this clear connection between whiteness and access to capital, but also the ability to join together with other fellow citizens and contract and negotiate a political future vis-a-vis -vis voting and, you know, lobbying for policy outcomes, et cetera. So when we talk about racial capitalism, we're talking about, um, you know, a, a, an economic system that privileges certain racial groups over others. But I also like to look at it another way. I think of the I think of the capital first, right? So if you have the capital, you are at the top of society, right? You are at, like class at the top of society, and then we attribute race to those to those classes. So that to be non-white means that you are necessarily part of an underclass, and then it's about where you fall, right? How close to blackness are you um, on the on that totem pole? But then also within whiteness, and I don't talk about this in this paper, but there's a paper I'm working on right now. We talk about the classing of white people, right? Are you Western European or are you more of the off-white Eastern European, right? And what does that mean? Um, even within the fraternity of whiteness, you, there's a, a minimum guarantee of rights and possibilities for you, but and a minimum guarantee of protections under law enforcement, importantly, right? But you still may not have as much power to negotiate, let's say if you're a Ukrainian, your self-defense as if you are a NATO state. So turning to the role of police, can you tell us about the origins of policing in the United States? That's a good question. Can I tell you? And I say it that way because there are multiple histories of policing, right? Um, and it all depends on what your understanding of what policing is or what policing is meant to be. So... Um, for the purposes of this project, I focused on um, there's a Southern legacy of policing that sort of originates in slave slave patrolling, um, where the, the goal was to protect the property right of the of the of the planter class, and that property was was enslaved people, um, and so you're you're trying to sort of uh, make sure that enslaved people are not running away, and and when they run away, you bring them back. Um, but there's also a second history. There's a history of modern or more contemporary Northern policing that kind of has been traced to 1838 Boston 
it is also racialized, right? It's this idea that there are all of these, as I call it, like off-white immigrants coming to Northern cities and the more established settler class felt threatened by them and really wanted to have um, a mechanism of rounding these folks up and containing them. And that mechanism became sort of more emboldened and more, there was more incentivized once slavery, right, um, was abolished. And it wasn't just, you know, poor European immigrants that were considered undesirable, but also now newly freed people of African descent who people were terrified of and also didn't were not interested in sharing space with or competing for economic resources with. And when police commit violence against Black people, a common response I think we've heard recently is to point out that the system is broken. But you argue that the commitment of American police to protect and serve is in concert rather than in conflict with police abuse of Black people. In other words, the system is working as it was intended to. Can you describe for us the role police play in enforcing the contract your article describes? Sure. Race has a lot to do with place and space. Okay, so it's this idea that if you are not white, not male, not cis, not perhaps Christian, um, because race is also gendered, it's also class, right, as we talked about, um, that there are limitations and there should be limitations on where you can be and what you should be doing. Some of those limitations are expressed and maybe articulated in law, lawyering policies, et cetera, but many of them are tacit, right? And so I think we got a real, we're getting a real contemporary example that's not obviously racialized, but will have irracial impacts with some of these abortion rulings that have been taking place over the last 10, 10 months. So if it's, you know, can you travel to get an abortion if you can't get one in your state? Um, this question of bounty hunters, right? Who can travel to find you, right? So um, because we know that um, because of poverty and classing that people of color, black and brown and indigenous women are likely to be more vulnerable to those policies, those new laws. Um, that's sort of an idea of how law enforcement works in terms of like, ordering place and space and ordering bodies and containing and detaining bodies to maintain order, right? It's not just riots, but we also saw two and three years ago, this sort of spate of video recordings of people rounding up black people for sitting in Starbucks, right? Why are you sitting in Starbucks? Um, shouldn't you be at home? Or, right, the situations where students, black students at colleges were, had the police called on them for being in the library. And it's this idea that, well, you couldn't be a student at this university, so you must be out of place. And we need the police to come and put you back in your place. Um, when Black people talk amongst themselves about being in their place, it's usually with this historical legacy of this idea of us being uppity. And so there's this like this vertical um, idea of Black people couldn't get too high and the sort of state and the citizens would bring them back down. But I also like to think of it as sort of lateral. Right. If you leave your home, you are liable to be attacked by the police. And more frighteningly, you don't have to leave your home anymore. You can be Botham Jean eating ice cream. You can be a Tatiana Jefferson playing video games with her nephew. You can be Breonna Taylor, who is asleep. And because there is this idea that no matter where we are, we're not in the right place, we become 
susceptible to containment, detention, elimination by the state through law enforcement. And you note that in this in this role that police are playing that, that you're describing, that the police themselves are not the contractors in this contractual relationship, but rather they are the tools for enforcing the contract akin to modern day overseers who enforced the commercial contracts that effectuated the sales of kidnapped and enslaved Africans. Through this lens, what do people hope to gain from becoming police officers and, and what are they denied? Hoping to gain a foothold in middle-class Americana. Um, hoping to achieve a fuller swath of benefits of American citizenship. It is not by accident that many police are ethnically, sort of ethnically, you know, I've been using this term off-white people, right? To have this, this, this racialized history of their own in New York City, right? It's about the, being the Italian, the Irish cop. And we know that for a long time, those are groups of people who are not considered to be white, who were discriminated against for work and housing. And so by joining right, the police force, you have some economic security, you have some legitimacy, right? Um, as a state, you, you as a, profess, as a profes, uh, professional, even though it's not white collar, right? There's this respect, you've got your badge, you've got your uniform, you've got your, well, again, your salary, your pension, you can provide for your family. And so there is the, con the bargaining for that, that you're doing with the planter classes, right? The Wall Street folks who need their, they need their peace and quiet so that they can do capitalism. They, you're bargaining that, okay, we will give you, we'll, we'll let you make up to $200,000 a year with overtime if you will just keep these Black and Brown and Indigenous people quiet and out of our way. Because we, as bankers, we want to look like cool, liberal, elite, non-racist people. We don't want to get our hands dirty. So you have to get your hands dirty with the brutality keep them quiet so that we can make our money and we'll give you a little bit of that money, right? And so I think um, that, you know, again, that's why I was saying, even within whiteness, you have to pay attention to ethnicity and class um, to understand why there is this drive to um, not just maintain policing, but to actually join policing, right? And so, once you started to see the sort of the civil rights, the human rights backlash, it makes police very, very frustrated, right? Um, but not just because of this idea of having physical power questioned. You're actually questioning or, or challenging one's ability to have that place in American society, to have that place on the totem pole of whiteness that keeps them from falling below that minimum guarantee of security, ownership, and contracting authority. In your article, you write that the role of policing to enforce this contractual relationship seeks to re reduce Black people's existence to that which is just human enough to fulfill the demand of their labor, but not human nor citizen enough to enjoy due process rights or the equal protection of law. Thus, the racial contract you outline, your article outlines is informed by theories of racial formations and constructions of legal personhood. Why is this denial of personhood such a crucial ingredient in the construction and maintenance of the racial contract? because the contract is materially offered, altered if those poor black grocery workers, 
right, are able to negotiate the terms of what it, of their citizenship, right? It's, it's the idea, like what I was explaining, like with my husband being an essential worker, it's like, we just need him to get to work. We need him. We, we don't, we don't care if he contracts COVID. Um, and even if he does, we need him to go to work. Don't tell anybody, right? You had all these supervisors. Don't tell anybody if you get sick, just go to work. Now, how you get to work, if you catch a beating from the police on the way to work, that's not our business. And as a matter of fact, we don't mind because it keeps you afraid enough that you won't, you know, make a huge stink, right? So you're going to just be as quiet as you can, hop on the train as quickly as you can, report to work, you know, put it, get, jump into your scrubs and get into, get into your, your job. Um, if you have contracting authority, if you have time to show up to the polls, if you have time to organize, the contract is materially altered. So we do need police to be on the streets act actively bullying people um, in order to sort of keep that down. And so I think that's why you saw, that I, I describe in the paper, these really absurd incidents of police actually just cruising around neighborhoods and you know, not harassing anyone in particular, just harassing the entire neighborhood um, while in uniform, while in police cruisers, right? Playing, you know, Trump propaganda out of the cars in Flatbush, um, playing the ice cream song, which is, you know, laden with racial slurs. Just It's just to um, remind people that we can kill you. We will make you miserable keep, you know, just literally keep quiet. Um, you know, don't get any bright ideas about protesting or, you know, being on the street organizing a political revolution or something like that. Go to work, make money for the planters, go home. Returning to your central analysis, in the legal world, you know, we would generally think that human and civil rights law are the best tools to analyze the issue of police violence against Black people. But your article uses theories from contract law to address the issue. For listeners who, who might not be familiar with these terms, could you describe what contract law is and why you chose to analyze these issues through that lens? Yeah, sure. Um, I have a long sort of professional history of human rights practice and civil rights practice as well. I teach contracts and I have found that there is, I think the gap between private and public law is unnecessary and very harmful if you're trying to understand race and if you're trying to understand um, gender, class and, and, and things of that nature, those sort of uh, ways that we order people um, because it lets private law get off scot-free and, and private law and commercial law are um, ways that we have of ordering society that are often undetected. So I pay attention to um, the reason why I use contract law as opposed to focusing primarily on human rights law is that um, I have come to view human rights law as like, while I believe in it and I believe it should work, I think it's a foil. And it's like sort of like, look over here at these human rights conventions and these give you formal equality while commercial law does all this dirty work. And so I really have devoted my research agenda to sort of bringing more of that up for people to say, no, 
you actually need to look at contract and 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 how how contracts are used to determine who can access property and who can't because once you understand that then you're able to understand why it is that the police or why it is that the state does what it does um if you're looking primarily at human rights law you will be perpetually stuck in that gap of um the law says this and so the system has failed us it's like no the system has not failed us there's a provision in the ucc that allows sheriffs to go and get their property back and there's a time right so the ucc is, was written like way after slavery but there was a time when we had an understanding of what that meant like when a sheriff going back and getting their property that that meant a person <laughs> that meant that meant whole people and so you want to sort of pay attention to the legacy of that and how commercial law and con contracts have been constructed. Like the, the, the ways in which we understand um, contracting authority, contractual capacity, how all of those factors are informed by our history as a slave society and as a society in which men have significantly more um, authority than non-men, right? And so when I teach, when I teach my contracts class, that's the lens in which I teach all those cases. Where in Ray Baby M, uh, Williams versus Walker Furniture, I like we we actually get you and get into the facts of the case and say, like, look at the parties, right? Like um, Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon, and right, that's Justice Cardozo's, um, you know, extremely sexist, you know, sort of ruling about her and her capacities as a woman. What he said about her became law, and we now teach it to one else as a matter of course. And so that had that necessarily has an impact on how we understand our right to negotiate um, and maintain and protect capital. And then how those contracts, how those how those agreements are actually enforced and maintained. So um, because that plays such a big part in how we order our lives and how we expect the property that we negoti negotiate to be protected, I think that's really critical to, um, to the discussion of law enforcement. As a law student, I, I feel like I left contracts behind in you know, the first semester of my first year of, of law school. But this was, so this was such a, I mean, I think it's such an important research agenda and it was such a, a good wake up call for me of a reminder of the role that kind of law plays in our society. And, and so I really appreciated that, that move. Yeah. Uh, can you describe some of the ways that classical contract theory fails to account for the inequality and injustice in our society? I guess you did that a little bit here with your discussion of those cases, but I'd love you to expand on that. There's this idea that everybody has equal contracting authority and that when people don't, it's okay. Um, and so I, um, there's actually a, a case that actually is often relegated to property classes called state versus man that I like to bring into my contracts classes where um, it's a contractual dispute about subletting a slave, an enslaved woman, and whether the person who had the sublease was able to shoot was 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 wrong for shooting the person, the enslaved person, right? Because you're shooting the person, the the actual proprietor's property, and you know students are like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> Starting the semester off with big energy, and I'm like, well, yeah, we we should teach more of those cases because you know. We're not always just talking about contracts of adhesion about furniture and 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 washing machines, and that have their own those have their own racial and gendered aspects. But here's an actual this is an actual court case 
where the courts are weighing in on, you know, whose contractual rights were breached. And what the court decides actually is law. That is now the law of the relevant jurisdiction. I think in this case, North Carolina. So um, I think that classical contract theory fails in that respect to account for um, the very fundamental role that racialized, gendered, you know, ordering play in the ability of people to participate in contracting. And also that it ignores the fundamental role um, that contracting has played in actually sort of ordering people like, like the, the enslaved woman, Lydia, right? She was actually the consideration, like she was actually the object. She's the object being contracted. Um, and, and until we have some really frank conversations in these casebooks and in these classrooms about what that means, I think we're doing our, our students a humongous disservice in their understandings of private and commercial law. And your article proceeds to analyze this racial contract we've discussed and apply these concepts of contracting that, that we've been talking about um, through the use of, oops, sorry, I got, I got myself a little mixed up. Let me step back for a second. <clears throat> your article proceeds to analyze this racial contract we've discussed, which is maintained by the police and relies on the denial of black personhood through the use of these uh, contract theories you described. Can you outline this analysis for us? Sure. Um, let's go back to the Starbucks scenario, right? You have two guys coming in and they're real estate brokers. I think they're coming in to have a real estate what, meeting about or like a real estate transaction that they want to get into. Two young black men dressed pretty casually as one is in Starbucks. And because they didn't like immediately order like venti green tea frappuccinos, like <laughs> the barista calls the cops on them and they're arrested. And um, contracts obviously play a huge role there, right? It's this idea that if you don't engage in contract with Starbucks, like, like if you didn't actually give the hand your money over, you weren't supposed to be there, even though there is a tacit agreement in society that Starbucks is a watering hole, right? So you've got everybody's, everybody's in there, you know, some people are ordering one drink. Some people are ordering several drinks with refills. Some people are just sitting down doing nothing. You know, you can go and start Starbucks by my house. I'll probably go to right after we get off is there's a lady who comes in with her daughter every day and the daughter does origami. She's four. Right. And it's like, it's Starbucks, you know, like that's, that's what it's about. But in this case, for whatever reason, right. Uh, I mean, we, I, I think I know the reason is, but because these guys are just sitting here, they were out of place needed to be put back in their place. And the cops were called on them and they were arrested. Now, the irony is that they were in there, right? Um, trying to actually <laughs> negotiate their own contract. And the state steps in and actually interrupts that meeting. And of course, for all the reasons that we are all sort of tacitly aware young people don't have as much space to like working like offices and so when they're getting their businesses off the ground they rely on right these kind of places of public accommodation to do work they can't all afford we work memberships right they they don't all they're not all members of the wing and 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 so sometimes they need to do their work at starbucks and so you actually have a situation where the state came in 
arrested them, put them at physical risk, um, actually could have imposed harm upon them, physical harm upon them, but also, right, in the context um, that was at play here, also stopped two Black men from actually doing business with each other that would have ostensibly brought wealth into Black communities that they were from. So that's like a real, for me, a real uh, pertinent example. Another example is um, Ryan Coogler, right? The, the, the director, producer of Black Panther. Young as well, Black. Obviously because of Black Panther, the Black Panther movie, super rich now, right? He pulls up to Bank of America in Atlanta. I think it was Bank of America, and I hope I'm not defaming Bank of America. He pulls up, and I think he had like what a member of his like his like house staff or one of, and he was going to pay them, you know, their salary. And for whatever reason, he needed to pay them in, in cash. So he goes to the bank, the bank with whom he has a contractual relationship. He's an account holder, large account holder. He's Ryan Coogler. He goes up and he does what you're supposed to do when you need a, a large withdrawal um, and you can't get it out of the ATM. Um, I think it was like $12,000. So he writes a note. He has his ID. He's like, he, I think the note says, hey, I'm Ryan Coogler. I'm very famous. Can you like give me this withdrawal very discreetly? I don't want anyone to know I'm here. They call the cops. He's arrested. Now, the rub here is that the people who called the cops on him, the employees of the bank, bank were also black. <laughs> but right? They're part of this institution that has its own troubled history with using slave, enslaved people as collateral and, right, making their money off of slavery. Um, they call the police officers. The police officers arrest him. He was actually trying to engage in contractual activity. He also, he was actually a contract holder. And it just goes to show that when you are, right, a person of color, even the contracts you have don't necessarily hold. And the state is not actually working to enforce your contracts. They're interrupting, interfering with your contracts all the time. And finally, your, your article talks about how white people in this country are kind of the folks who are, in, are able to contract and allowed to contract while marginalized communities are often, um, I guess, forced into these contracts relationships, but not beneficiaries of them. So could you describe to us um, I guess, what grounds marginalized people have to void the contracts or the social contract that, that we've discussed? I think Black people do it all the time. Um, I can only speak most authoritatively on Black communities because that's the community I'm most a part of. Um, we do it all the time. We try to create our own neighborhoods. We try to create our own banks. We try to create our own schools. Our own. We have our own churches. Um, I don't think there's any of those sort of institutions or community entities that I've mentioned that haven't been breached by law enforcement in the past, right? Whether it's through the like Tulsa race riots or Rosewood, where it's like, we're specifically going to destroy this community because you're doing too well and you're asserting independence. You're not supposed to be independent. We need you working for us. Um, but also thinking about Emmanuel AME, right? Dylan Roof comes into the black church hospitable people and like let you in and you shoot us, right? You kill us. Um, Buffalo, going to the grocery store. You're going to engage in contract, not just because you need groceries for yourself, but that was the only grocery store in that community. It's a food desert. And that's the community that, that's the grocery store that fed that black community. Um, and to have it 
be terrorized by a vigilante, right? That's, a, that's another type of law enforcement that, you know, we can talk about, you know, but also then once that act of terror happens, we're now reliant upon the state to effectuate justice. First of all, it's a justice that can't ever be full because the people who are dead are dead. They can't come back. But there are then now all these procedural hurdles. Um, and there are all these other um, ways for the shooter's whiteness to be privileged vis-a-vis -vis that community, right? Uh, if you're, if you are pro death penalty, right. It's like, you know, you might say, okay, this person is going to keep their life and, and these people lost their lives. Um, but there's other just, um, and uh, we don't know what's going to happen with him because that's a recent event, but I'll say, for example, like with the Flint water crisis, it was two days ago that the Michigan Supreme court threw out the indictments on the state officials that were, you know, sort of responsible for the Flint water crisis. And it's like, oh my God, goodness. Like, this is like, there's like two rounds of indictments. You're now throwing it out. It's like, when will we ever get justice for this breached contract where we have a, an understanding that we will have clean water? We pay for the water every month and the water was literally sickening and killing us. And because of procedure and technicalities, right? Michigan Supreme Court says, nope, we, we, can't, we can't move ahead. And it's been, it's been nine years now since the... The corroded pipes were used. So I think those are just some examples of um, things that people do, like we do to we do try to create our own safe havens, but those are regularly breached, if you will, by the state. And it's hard to say use the word breach because of the, the authority that the state has, but the impact is that of of breach. And I'm wondering if uh, before we before we close, if you have anything else to add or, or anything else that you'd like to discuss, and then I'll, I'll thank you. There's just so much going on in my mind because it's just such a time, <laughs> legally and politically. So I honestly don't know where I would start. I would just say to readers that um, while it's been a real pleasure for me to do this academic work, I think it's very important to always try to connect the work to things that are happening right now. And so whether it is, right, um, administrative court rulings or immigration or reproductive justice, um, you kind of want to follow, people say follow the money. I say follow the contracting, follow the ordering. Um, because sometimes if you look at things from the formal, right, the formal provisions and guarantees of civil rights, which I don't know that we will have this time next year, um, you will, you will, like I said before, you will be stuck in this idea of, okay, they say we have these rights, but I don't, I'm not living that. And it's a disempowering position because you're being gaslit by the law, essentially. Um, looking at what the Supreme Court is doing to dismantle our institutions and our states from a position of, or from the, the lens of, you no, know, there's a social contract that is being renegotiated and they're using results oriented sort of rationales to get to that, the, the, the terms of that new agreement, that might help you understand why everything seems to be happening so fast and why everything seems to be so partisan, right? Um, I think it's just a more helpful lens. And so I'm encouraging anyone under the sound of my voice is to sort of look at um, the changes in our law um, our laws and 
um, the subsequent political alterations through those lenses, I think it will be very helpful. And thank you. Yeah, thank you, Professor Professor Jackson. So thank you so much for, for joining us to discuss your article. Thanks for having me. And thanks again for publishing the article. It's been a joy to work with you all. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Professor Jackson So's article, you can find it in volume 110 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. We'll see you in the next episode.